People living with dementia, even very deep into it, are still incredibly creative and capable and competent. They just don't have short-term memories. And I know there's loss, but we get to reveal different sides of who we are. And it might be different from what society had valued highly before, but there's still power and incredible creativity. Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast. Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. Where we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. Today's episode of the AgeWise Podcast is brought to you by Hero, the in-home medication manager. The only solution that automatically dispenses every dose, keeps everyone connected with a simple app, and makes sure meds don't run low. Hero, a dose of calm for the whole family. Dana Walrath refers to her work as a border-crossing blend of creative writing, anthropology, and art. Her work has brought Dana to Armenia as a Fulbright scholar and to Japan as a resident artist. Since moving to Vermont in 2000, she's used stories and art to teach medical humanities at the University of Vermont's College of Medicine. In 2016, Dana published a graphic memoir titled Alzheimer's Through the Looking Glass. In this magical tale of hope and possibility, Dana combines drawings and stories to chronicle three years of caregiving for her mother, Alice, who was then in the middle stages of Alzheimer's disease. Dana Walrath has a PhD and an MFA. She's spoken and written widely about the role of comics in healing, and her recent essays have appeared in Slate and Foreign Policy. But today, she joins us from Ireland, where she's an Atlantic Fellow for Equity in Brain Health at the Global Brain Health Institute. She's going to tell us all about Alzheimer's through the looking glass and share a bit about her second graphic memoir in development. Dana, we have a lot to talk about. Welcome. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Just to put this in context for folks, I understand that you were born in Greensboro, North Carolina, but your parents moved the family to New York City. I love what you wrote on your website, like all young primates, I started out using my eyes and hands long before I began to use words. So first it was art and then art with words, right? Yes, absolutely. With a doctorate of anthropology thrown in into the middle of that. (laughs) That was my practical degree, believe it or not. (laughs) But it has served me very, very well. Uh, My parents were actually both originally New Yorkers. My mother was born and raised there, the daughter of refugees from the Armenian Genocide. And my father was um, from upstate New York, and they were down in North Carolina doing graduate school. My mother um, in zoology at Duke, and then my father was doing engineering and public health there. And how did your family happen to land in Yemen? I found that fascinating. You were actually in 10th grade when you began teaching there. Is that right? That was how I learned about American privilege and white privilege. They were so desperate for teachers in Yemen at that point that with my 10th grade education, I was extremely well educated and I got hired to teach sixth and seventh grade science and math. And now, tragically, that school with the Madrasa Muhammad Ali Othman, it was Yemen's first experiment in bilingual co-education. 
Um, in the conflicts recently, it's been bombed and is no longer That's, heartbreaking. Yeah, that is heartbreaking. And how did your family wind up there? My family, my mother's side, we have more cousins in Armenia than we have in the U.S. Uh-huh. And even though she raised us to be Americans and really did, kind of kept that side of the culture on the back burner, I think a response to sort of the entrenched bigotry that she experienced growing up in New York City in the 1930s, she still was longing to connect to Armenia. So the whole family went to Yemen in order to go to Armenia on the way home. <laughs> oh, I see. That's so fascinating. Yeah. I saw a TEDx presentation you gave where you talked about your mother moving in with you. What made you think it was a good idea for your mother to move in with you, given that you wrote on your website, I was the daughter who got on her nerves and the feeling was mutual? How did the moving in transpire? What happened was first she got kicked out of the co-op apartment she had been living in. She had had an apartment fire that she did not remember. I was at work and I got a call from the lawyer from the co-op board saying that because of the apartment fire, she couldn't live there unless she had round-the-clock help. And my mother hated the -the round-the-clock help. Her exact words were, they follow me around like the Gestapo. And, um, And so we had to try something else. And we tried a senior living, assisted living community. But she kept on trying to walk back home and was really already too far into dementia to manage there. So they said the only thing that she could do was go into the lockdown unit. And at the same time, they said, she's still too well, don't do that, see whatever else you could find. Mm -hmm. And we started looking and none of the other options were good. I had always thought she'd move in with my sister because they were really, really close. Uh But my sister was at a different stage of raising her family. And I think when you have that really close relationship, in some ways the loss can be overwhelming. Whereas for me, I wasn't so much coping with the loss. I was coping with how are we going to help her have a decent life? And it just kept on feeling like the only right thing was for her to live with her family, with people who knew her, with people who could interpret the various things she was trying to do, because there was always a logic to it. It wasn't like she was without judgment. It was just she was taking in different kinds of information and trying to put it back together in a creative way. So that was what led me to say, you know what, this is the right choice. And it ended up giving me back as much as I gave. So Mm -hmm. it was the right choice. Did you say you were able to interpret her? Yeah, that is exactly what I said. I could interpret her. You know how in dementia, so many of the things that seem like they're just straightforward symptoms, if you're using a classic medical model, Uh she was just expressing herself creatively. Like she would hallucinate and see my father. I could go to a place of saying, oh, are you missing Dave? You know, or there he is. How nice he's here with us. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't unnerved by whatever was manifesting and knew that if she was in a different kind of setting, whatever was manifesting would get turned into a symptom that would then get treated with drugs or would be considered a behavior problem. And so it ended up just feeling like she needed to be with her near and dear, even if we did get on each other's nerves. Uh But I have to say that subconsciously, probably 
I knew that she and I had to make our peace. And that probably was what was driving me subconsciously. When I was working with medical students talking about death and dying, you know, we would always go through uh, how it's so important to know that you're loved and that you've loved others and that you have to forgive others and forgive yourself. And my mother and I, I knew we had some forgiveness things to work out with each other. And the time of living together gave us that opportunity. So it sounds like you knew quite a bit about dementia already going into it. I have always had a fascination with neurobiological things. Um, When I was an undergraduate, I had a fellowship working on eye-brain connections of zebrafish, and I always loved it looking at neurology under the microscope. I've just always been fascinated with that whole realm. And then with studying anthropology, I know a lot about growth and development and the evolution of the brain and so on and so forth. And mm. when you're an anthropologist, you're used to thinking about cognition in terms of cultural variation and so forth. So I had a model into which I could fit dementia so that I wasn't just so scared of it. And I don't know that I necessarily went out and did any research about dementia. In fact, it was more just kind of the broad anthropological training in sickness and health that gave me a way to think about it. What surprises, if any, did you have along the way? It sounds like you were well-equipped, but I'm sure there were some surprises for you. Yeah, they're always surprises. I was surprised at how hard some of the medical encounters were. And now that I'm here over in Ireland and I'm looking at how dementia is experienced here, every time I'm in some sort of patient encounter that reminds me of something my mother lived through, I'm remembering, oh man, that was bad. So a real surprise I had was going with her to her neurologist right at the time that she was saying about the caregivers, they followed me around like the Gestapo. I mean, she was getting very, very agitated and he wanted to prescribe sedatives. And I remember saying, she's trying to tell us that this isn't working. Let's not medicate her to do something that she's trying to tell us isn't working. And I was a little bit surprised to not be heard. I felt like, My gosh, I have a PhD in medical anthropology. I'm an educated, well-spoken person. And yet here I am in a medical encounter in a very well-regarded clinical setting. And yet I was not treated as a collaborator. So that was a surprise. And so my sister and I ended up sort of dividing out the work and she kept on going to the neurology appointments. And then my mother moved in with us. Another surprise from early on was her internist was insisting on her having a colonoscopy when it was so clear that this would be incredibly disorienting. And he said, well, you know, she can't be my patient anymore unless you get her a colonoscopy. And then it was like, okay, let's find a new doctor for her. Some of the surprises weren't so much in the encounters with her, but in the encounters with the medical system. Uh huh. I thought this was a really interesting point you made in one of your talks that the internal governor in people with Alzheimer's really gets lost. And I'm wondering what sort of thoughts your mother mused aloud and what you discovered about her that she'd kept hidden from you. Yeah. Oh, that was just, there was such a treasure trove of information that came out. 
uh, one of the things that came out was that her father, who was a refugee from the Armenian Genocide, when he first arrived in the U.S., he started working with the Ford Motor Line. I always thought he was a shoemaker, but no, he was in Detroit first, worked the Ford Motor Line, and then via an arranged marriage came to New York. I knew the arranged marriage part, but I didn't know the Ford Motor Line part. She talked a lot about a younger brother that she had who had Down syndrome who died when she was about 10 years old. And she just had so much guilt and just stuff she needed to forgive herself for, for not being able to be a completely kind and generous big sister to someone who was profoundly disabled in his case. So that came as a surprise because she never, I knew he had existed, but she never spoke about him openly. And then, I mean, you know, (laughs) the kinds of things that were just wonderful surprises. You know, I said before we had unfinished business. Well, there was one day she asked me, um, I mean, she always, almost always knew my name, but she very rarely could connect that I was her daughter. She would say things like, oh, Dana, it's so good I ran into you in the parking lot. I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> you know, it was great. <laughs> but there was one day where she said, Dana, why are you so good to me? Oh. And I said, because you're my mother. And she said, I'm your mother? Who's your daddy? And then I started recalling who everybody was. Mm-hmm. And she turned and said to me, I wasn't very good to you. I'm sorry. And that is something that most children never hear in such a straightforward way from their parents. And, you know, I think all human beings have things we need to apologize for. And dementia gave us ways to make peace with each other. So that was that was like the most enormous present um, to receive. Wow. So how old was she when she moved into your home? And at this point, your sons were grown or not? My youngest was a senior in high school and my older two were in college. But one of them was in college nearby. So he would come home periodically so we could get some respite. And he continued to do that after the youngest went off to college too. Mm -hmm. And the youngest gave up his bedroom for my mother because he knew he was leaving soon. And let's see, that was the beginning of 2008. And um, so I have to do the math. So that was, she died a week after she turned 84 um, last November. And so she moved in with us. uh, That was 2017, nine years before that. Um, And when I look back in retrospect, I mean, Some things that really could be early dementia or early, um, we were seeing signs and symptoms and questions, things that now I look back and think may well have been stuff starting up, but that we didn't quite recognize it. I remember one of the kids' graduations from, I think it was was an eighth grade graduation, and every person who walked in, my mother would say very loudly, oh my God, look at him, he's so tall, he must have been left back, or oh, she's so skinny, she's anorexic. And this was before she was living with us. This was really a few years before that. But my father was still alive at that point. And so as a team, they were managing. So it wasn't completely clear. But by 2004, early when he got diagnosed with lung cancer, I kept on thinking, wow, this is the 
biggest case of denial I've ever seen hmm. because it didn't look like my mother could understand that he had lung cancer. And now in retrospect, I hmm. think she probably wasn't taking in the new information, you know? Wow. So your mom passed away in November of last year. Is that yeah. right? I yeah. didn't know that. I'm, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. It was a beautiful passage. Mm. And it really was. And so I I think one of the reasons we're all so afraid of dementia is because it's close to the end of life and we know that we don't have a cure and that people die from it. And I really hope in this next book to take some of that on and show that we can make this into a beautiful transition and a meaningful transition for everyone involved. A couple of summers ago, she was still verbal enough that we would have really poignant conversations about death and dying. Wow. And we'd read a lot of poetry about death and dying to open that all up. And so it felt like all of that work got us ready for what was to come. Wow, that's so brave. I would like to go back for a moment to the Alzheimer's book. If you could tell us how that book took shape. I love that in one of the panels I saw on your website, your mother says, to mix comics with medicine is positively insulting. I want no part of it. I mean, <laughs> so how cooperative was she? And, and how did this all like, sort of take shape? That's a great question. It took shape by me discovering comics, really all sorts of graphic narratives, especially Art Spiegelman's Mouse and Alison Bechdel's Fun Home and all sorts of powerful literary works in comics form mm -hmm. while my mother was living with me. And she had been a lifelong reader. I mean, just uh, loved reading, but as the dementia was progressing, it was harder for her to read. Yet she could read comics. And every graphic novel, graphic narrative, graphic memoir that came into the house, she would just eat it up. Mm -hmm. So I decided, I was getting an MFA at the time, uh, and I had this art background, and I decided that when I wrote our story, I wanted to do it in comics form so that someone with dementia could access it more easily. As you brought up earlier, you know, I'm talking about how on my website I said all young primates used our visual senses far earlier than our, our words. I think that we see that also with dementia. People who are living with dementia have incredibly strong other senses. They may have lost language, but they're incredibly perceptive in terms of body language, facial expressions, tone of voice, and so forth. And all of that comes through in a comic, and it comes through in real life as well. So I just knew that that was something that I wanted to use. And then there, you know, I had this art background and then I had this writing background and it was such a great thing to get to put them together in comics. Mm -hmm. I read that when you started making the book, you didn't even know anything about graphic medicine. So what was it like to discover that you'd been practicing an innovative art form all along? <laughs> oh my gosh, it was so much fun. And, and the best thing about it is that I discovered that there was this innovative art form because of a colleague in anthropology that introduced my work to 
a colleague in, of hers who was a big graphic medicine person. She was studying comics. Mm-hmm. Juliet McMullen, who um, is part of also the founding board of the graphic medicine um, organization. And she invited me out to speak at UC Riverside about Alzheimer's. And when I was out there, she said, you know, there's this really cool graphic medicine conference. You should go to it and just write to them. Tell them you just learned about it. And so I did. And the summer of 2012, I went to the conference. It was just before I was leaving for the Fulbright in Armenia. And when I got there, it was like, oh, my gosh, these are my people. They're all doing exactly what I love. And I had no idea there was this whole realm. So it was a complete thrill. And I haven't missed the meeting since then. Wow. And uh, yeah. <laughs> well, for people who don't know, perhaps you could define what graphic medicine is. Graphic medicine is comics having to do with any aspect of sickness and health. Mm-hmm. And um, health is writ large. It, it's not just, you know, going to the doctor's health is uh, using, say, the World Health Organization, a complete state of physical, social, and psychological well-being, not the mere absence of disease. So, you know, any sort of thing that's making people suffer is a health question. And then graphic is the shorthand for putting things into a visual comics format. For some people, graphic means, um, you know, the graphic the way, oh, this is graphic violence. Or, but, but we're taking back that word. It just means that it's drawn. So it's a, a drawn sequential narrative having to do with health and healing. Coming up after the break, Dana tells us about the physical construction of her book. It really was like an adventure in Wonderland. There were scary times, amazing times, exciting times, shrinking, growing, all these unexpected things. But if we treated it like a journey in Wonderland, it worked a lot better. Support for the AgeWise podcast is brought to you by Hero, a company committed to taking the pain out of medication management for you and your loved ones. Let pill boxes, missed doses, repeated phone calls, and trips to the pharmacy become a thing of the past with Hero's three-part system. The device sorts and dispenses doses at the push of a button. The app tells you if mom has taken her pills and alerts you if she hasn't. And Hero Fill notifies you when refills are running low, delivering meds directly to mom's door. Hero, a dose of calm for the whole family. The physical construction of the book, Alzheimer's, is really fascinating. For listeners, there are panels where Dana's mom is shown wearing a top in which the pattern is made up entirely of a bunch of unintelligible capitalized letters. You have text in the shape of a bathrobe that your mother is wearing. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about how the book is constructed and, and why. Absolutely. Um, My mother's name is Alice, and Alice is a very symbolic name. I mean, there's so many from Alice in Wonderland to uh, Go Ask Alice and uh, the Jefferson Airplane and what's the film? Alice doesn't live here anymore. I mean, Alice is a name that comes up again and again. And when I was thinking about how to represent my mother, 
I gravitated to Alice in Wonderland for a bunch of reasons. It was very beloved when I was growing up. It got read out loud to us. We all could recite lots of the poems from it. So then I started thinking about what dementia was like for us. And it really was like an adventure in Wonderland. There were scary times, amazing times, exciting times, shrinking, growing, all these unexpected things. But if we treated it like a journey in Wonderland, it worked a lot better. So what I ended up doing to make my mother's clothing, I cut up an old paperback copy of Alice in Wonderland. And I made it into her bathrobe. And that was the moment I found the voice of the book. And once I found the voice, I just drew all the images that are in the book in a sort of a white heat situation, you know, just get up every morning and draw all day for the month of December 2010. And those drawings were part of the Brooklyn Art Library's sketchbook project. So if you look at just the drawings that are in the book and you turn, just read the left-hand side of the page where the drawings are, you can read that original comic, which is a love story. And what happened was is so many people started responding to that, that people said, oh, put it on a blog. And then I realized, well, if I put it on a blog, I needed to write something to go with the images. I couldn't just put, you know, 26 pictures on a blog. It wouldn't draw anybody in. Mm -hmm. So I started started posting those pages one by one and then writing in response to them. And that is what ultimately became the book. And it ends up being a book that you could read three ways. You could read it by just looking at the pictures, or you could read it the traditional way of starting at the beginning and reading the words and looking at the pictures and going from start to finish. Or if you're a person with dementia or living with dementia or if you're an exhausted caregiver and you don't have very much time, you could pick up the book wherever you wanted to. Just open it up and you get one picture and one story. And that story could make you laugh or cry and just take you someplace else very quickly. So even though there's a long through line, each of the vignettes is a complete story. And a tired caregiver could read it in five minutes. And a person living with dementia could read it again and again and go back and recreate the pieces that they might have forgotten by the time they got to the end of the page or something. Mm. So I was really thinking of the structure of the book as being a metaphor for what life with dementia is like and that how if we get ourselves out of this sort of linear concept of space and time, and it's got to be set up just like that, just the way that we were always raised to do it and always socialized to think, then we can make life a lot easier for people who are living with dementia. And then they can show us what their world is like. And that ties back into Alice in Wonderland because, you know, I got to travel to all sorts of interesting places with my mother. <laughs> yeah. I love your use of humor. Of course, any caregiver will tell you you're lost without it. I love the <laughs> panel in the book where you're driving and your mom turns to you in the passenger seat and your mom says, Dana, I just got my period. It's the first time, you know. <laughs> and you wrote, I had always wanted a daughter. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, and she was so earnest and so yeah. sweet. Yeah, so it really is meeting somebody exactly where they are. And then it takes you different places. So back to your question about surprises. So that was an opening to talk about Armenian school that she went to when she was growing up, which she never really talked about. And she sort of revealed why she didn't marry an Armenian. She said, she said the Armenian boys were too hairy. <laughs> She led the way with the humor. There's so much depth to this book, too. One of my favorite panels is where you have Alice cut out from Alice in Wonderland. And uh, at the the bottom, it says, without minds, who are we? Wow, that's deep. Without minds, who are we? Well, we're different than the people we think we are when we wake up every day and we have our minds. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I I wrote the question that way, and that's one panel without all of the context around it. But this is the anthropologist speaking. We live in a society that believes in mind-body dualism, that we've been socialized to think that without our minds, we aren't really who we once were. Hmm. And I know there's loss, but then we discover these new things. So we get to reveal different sides of who we are. And it might be different from what society had valued highly before, but there's still power and incredible creativity there. I know it's like a hard idea because we all got raised to think about minds are exactly it. We quote Descartes, I think, therefore I am. So dementia scares us because without being able to think just the same way, we're different, but we're still very human. And the fact that my mother would repeat things taught me to live in the present moment more. But if I bought some flowers, she would notice them every couple of minutes. And I wouldn't do that. I mean, I'd be busy doing other things. And how good to have someone pointing out beauty every few minutes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Did your perception of yourself change during that time? I think that what I learned from the experience was that I could really trust who I was because she trusted me so completely. So I think that my confidence grew my sense of trusting my judgment about what was right and wrong grew. So I was, I was raised in a family that revered science and revered doctors. And I learned through dementia that my mother had always wanted to go to medical school. And so then I started to understand why she had been so busy pushing me in that direction when clearly I was a little too outside the box for that. (laughs) But what happens is... Through dementia, I got to really trust my sense of what medicine, what biomedicine, scientific medicine could give us and where it couldn't serve us. Hmm. The experience made me trust myself and know myself better. Absolutely. What's your view of why there's such an emphasis placed on finding the cure? I think that it goes back to the structure of our entire medical system. I mean, we're finding the cure for everything. We learn when we're young that it's okay to be sick only if it's temporary. I mean, think of, um, you must remember Madeline from when 
kid, right? Yeah. Where she gets her appendix taken out, and at the end of the story, all the little girls cry, boo-hoo, we want our appendix out too. And then Miss Clavel says to them, good night, little girls. Thank the Lord you are well. Now go to sleep. I mean, we learn we're not supposed to want to be sick because the ideal way to be sick within our society is a temporary thing that can get fixed by the efforts. And we learn that it's something that can be measured with tests and then treated. And this is why stigma surrounds everything that's chronic or terminal or located in the mind because we structure being sick that way. I mean, other societies do it quite differently. They don't necessarily locate sickness in one person's body and they don't insist that somebody else tell you whether you're really sick or not sick. I mean, looking at at sickness across cultures is really a fascinating business, but that gave me a toolkit for um, negotiating, navigating dementia. Yeah, um, one of the lines in your book is, a a society's medical system reflects its core belief, core beliefs. And that, you know, listening to you talk just really reinforces the idea that the American medical system really reflects its core belief that things can be fixed. Yes, yeah. We're a can-do society that focuses on independence and youth and all those things. And so what that ends up doing is it it leaves people at the end of life in general, but at the end of life with some sort of cognitive difference, really um, stranded because they don't fit. Mm-hmm. So Dana, now you're over at the Global Brain Health Institute, which is really exciting. What a great opportunity for you. Tell us about the Institute and the focus of your second graphic memoir. Oh, thank you. It really is an amazing program. It's the um, Atlantic Philanthropies set up a series of fellowships around the globe, all of which are contributing somehow or another to social justice and equity. So the Global Brain Health Institute is focusing on brain equity. So how do we improve the lives of people around the globe who are experiencing some kind of cognitive difference? And dementia is a huge part of it. And so while I'm here, I'm getting to really understand the way that dementia is experienced in Ireland, which has a similar scientific medical system, but a very different political economy and um, other, you know, different kinds of service traditions Mm -hmm. so that I can make a good comparison with the U.S. and then also comparing it to Japan and Armenia, which um, have their own ways of handling dementia. But at the same time, I'm not here alone. I'm with fellows from all over the world. There are two cohorts, a group at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, and a group here in Dublin. And, you know, we're from all over the world. In Dublin, I'm the only American. And in UCSF, uh, UCSF, I think there's only a couple more Americans. And then otherwise, we're from Pakistan, Egypt, Brazil, Ecuador, Colombia, Costa Rica, all over from Nigeria, um, Botswana. We're getting to have these fabulous conversations about healthcare across the globe and how we're going to not fall into the trap of just exporting biomedicine, but really coming up with some sort of model that is going to help everyone in the world. And 
I wrote my proposal to write a second Alzheimer's book. It's tentatively titled Between Alice and the Eagle, and it's going to be a graphic memoir, so it's really going to tell the story of the end of Alice's life and her death, but it's also going to have a backdrop of what I know about dementia across the globe and a couple of issues that I'm really passionate about. One of them is caregiving and gendered aspects of it uh, within families and then in terms of migrant labor too. Mm -hmm. I I was so struck by the wonderful people who were caring for my mother at the end of her life when she was no longer living with me. I mean, they were from Nigeria, Congo, Ghana, Ukraine, and they had left their loved ones behind at home, coming to the U.S. as refugees or as economic immigrants, you know, trying to make a life here, but leaving their loved ones behind so they could take care of mine. And I'm witnessing the same thing. There's a big Filipino migrant labor force here in Ireland and the same thing in Japan. And we've got to really engage with that question globally. So gendered aspects of it and global flows. And then also thinking about what's the relationship between trauma and dementia? What about the histories that people have experienced? And what can we do to make people's lives better And then instead of focusing on a cure, maybe we're going to do enough prevention that we'll see a lot less dementia as time goes on. That's some of what I'm hoping for. And um, so I'm writing a book, talking with wonderful people, getting to tell stories, you know, in in all sorts of places here. So it's really quite wonderful. What a nice break from your teaching. It's interesting. After my mother said to me, you should quit your job and make art full time. I took her at her word and I took a leave of absence and I have not been back in the classroom regularly since. And what's happened is my creative work's taken off. So, Mm. you know, besides Alzheimer's, I've got a novel out. I've got another one that's in submission right now. Fingers crossed. Uh, It'll have a a publisher very soon. I've been making art installations and, you know, getting invitations to just talk about the work that I think I'm here to do that I wouldn't have discovered if I hadn't taken the advice that my mother had the presence of mind to give me during dementia, which was very different from the advice she gave me before her internal governor. (laughs) She said, you go to medical school. I mean, now She says, make art full time. And I am basically doing that. I use my academic mind, you know, it's there, but I tend to put it into creative forms instead of into academic papers because I want to support people and reach people, touch people's hearts instead of just having a back and forth with other academics. Mm -hmm. It sounds like your mom really gave you that final little push that you know you needed. And she gave you that little permission to say you can step away from this other stuff now. That is absolutely the truth. Absolutely. It felt so good to have her blessing. It really did. So that came in 2008. And now a decade later, I'm, I'm living a life that I never would have imagined. And it is in part from that blessing and from taking the time to be with her as a caregiver. And um, that was really precious time. She also, during that time, very early on, she made me promise that when it got too hard, that I would do something else. So I didn't have that 
struggle that I think so many people have to face that it's getting too hard at home and they're racked by guilt and they don't know what to do. I just knew when it was getting too hard that I'd make the change. And actually, she deliberately showed us it was the moment she started doing all sorts of weird behaviors that disappeared the minute I said to her, you're going to start going to a school for people living with Alzheimer's disease, and it'll be really nice for you. And she said, oh, good, I love school. And then she stopped hitting people and throwing things, and she stopped taking out the insides of her depends and leaving them in my studio. I mean, she was trying to tell us it's time. She didn't have the words, but she did it in actions, and those behaviors went away. It teaches you so much, too, about how to pay attention to people beyond what they're saying. Yes. That's really intense. Gosh, when I fantasize about how good it could be for patients and families, it would be that when people living with dementia and their loved ones receive the diagnosis, they get coaching and training in how to read between the lines because people living with dementia even very deep into it, are still incredibly creative and capable and competent. They just don't have short-term memories. And and so they're having to come up with very creative ways to convey messages. And if we get supported to learn how to do that, it will be much more satisfying for caregivers. It will be so healing and soothing for the people who are getting cared for. And I love to imagine that in the future. Yeah, me too. Did your mom die in your home or was she in hospice? After she left me, she moved down to memory care outside of New York City. So she was near my brother and sister. Then she got kicked out of memory care. And this is something that I didn't know when we first were setting that up, that memory care takes you only until you fit with the program. Mm -hmm. And then you get sent to a nursing home. And she started tapping. Here you can hear me tapping in the background in around February. And I thought, wow, this is a new part of the disease. I started trying to think of ways to help her. I got her worry beads because, you know, we Greeks and Armenians, we we, we handle things and, and nothing was working. And then they kept on kind of isolating her more and more because her agitation was upsetting other residents. And finally, they kicked her out and said the only thing she could do is a nursing home. And I started looking around and I contacted a group that had heard me speak about Alzheimer's. And this was before the book came out. It was just a blog and I was speaking about it at that point. And they wanted me to come and see what they were doing. It was this very outside-the-box, crunchy, small-scale Vermont community home. Mm -hmm. And I approached them, and they wanted me first to see what they were doing. And I said, oh, you know, I'm just doing creative work, no research right now. But when my mother needed a place to live, I reached out to them and said, can we give it a try and see if she can live with you guys? And... We moved her up there on a trial basis, and then she spent three more pretty amazing years living in this small community, only 33 residents, not all people with memory impairment. There were adults with developmental differences. There were adults with mental illness. There were adults who 
just needed someone to cook their meals, but their, their memories and their other functions were in great shape. And having this mixed community meant that everybody could contribute and support each other. So the people with the good memories could help my mother remember things. And my mother would contribute things like uh, her next door neighbor, I think is someone who likely had schizophrenia. I don't know exactly what, but they would do stuff together so that every time she saw him, she would point to him and she'd say, you're good. (laughs) It was great. And I thought to myself, this person who's, you know, dealing with mental illness, he probably hasn't had someone say that to him, let alone 15 times a day, every day, at any point in his life. And yet my mother could bring that into the community. And so it was like she was living at home, but it wasn't in my house. And so we got to all be with her and stay with her there, the staff in and out. We had started hospice there during the summer just to give her some more support. And I was in England and got word that she had taken a turn and then got back and got to be there for the next few days with my sister. And then after she died, as her grandchildren arrived, they didn't make us move her. They let everybody just come and be with her and treating the home like it was our home quite an amazing experience where she died. That sounds so unusual. It really was unusual. So this next book is going to write about that model of care because I think I think we're making a real mistake. I mean, think about it. When in the course of history has it ever worked to take a group of people who share this one quality and then isolate them and lock them up and put them someplace. I mean, Mm -hmm. why is it going to work with dementia? It's time to rewrite that practice. And so I really want to get that model out there. I want to get the Japanese model of making the entire country dementia friendly so that shopkeepers, uh, bus drivers, police, everybody on the streets are socialized to kind of recognize someone who might be a little disoriented and wandering and then be able to help them get back home. Is this the model for you, Japan? Well, it was interesting. When I lived, when my mother lived with us, when we were out in the Vermont countryside, we let her wander because we knew it was so important for her dignity. Hmm. She wandered with our dog and all of our neighbors knew how to help her get back home. And the dog would come barking if somehow they got separated. And so we were doing it in a rural environment in the U.S. And then Japan was the first place that I saw that had really taken on as a national policy to make the entire country dementia-friendly. They've trained 8 million people so far. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so I think other countries are taking this on, and they're dementia-friendly communities, mostly smaller scale. But where Japan is absolutely leading the way is they're not saying, oh, this can only happen in little villages. They're making it part of urban life. And I think that all the people who are living with dementia have something to teach all of us. And wouldn't it be better for everyone if the streets were safe and if we could redirect each other and we could always help each other? Because the people who are committing crimes, they're suffering in various ways too. Their needs aren't getting met. So we need a broad rehumanization and um, a broad shift of society. Um, And I think that dementia can maybe lead the way. 
Yeah. Well, Dana, for people who are listening to this podcast who like are just coming to this anew, this experience with dementia, what suggestions do you have maybe for folks caring for someone with Alzheimer's or another form of dementia? Yeah. My oldest son does comedy. And when he was watching me interact with my mother, he said, you know, mom, you're doing improv comedy. The basic (laughs) rule is yes and. So enter the other person's world. Whatever they're doing, say yes to it and then add to it. Don't spend any time contradicting or correcting. And if you view it as a journey, the yes end can be like improv comedy and can be a lot of fun and funny. Take good care of yourself because it's easier to go to these other places if you've had respite. Figure out how to get the help and the rest. And that that is something that is a striking difference between the U.S., say, and Ireland, where there are home care packages that get provided for people in the context of having a loved one living with them who has these extraordinary needs. I mean, admittedly, the budget's tight and so on and so forth, but we're not even thinking that way. And in the U.S., mm-hmm. people just have to give up income and then figure out ways to piece it together. But even if you can't pay for someone to help, one of the most profound things that I learned is that people want to help. They just don't know how. And so ask for it and accept it. And you know, be creative about places you can go to. I remember we would bring my mother folk dancing. And I mean, she just had such a blast and everybody loved helping her be part of this normal social group. So don't stop socializing because the person has dementia, because most other people are really ready to welcome us in. And it's the stigma and the fear that is making it hard on everybody. So be brave and challenge that by going out and surprising fun things will happen. We've been speaking with writer, artist, and anthropologist Dana Walrath about her graphic memoir, Alzheimer's, Through the Looking Glass, and about her second graphic memoir, currently in development. Dana is an Atlantic Fellow for Equity and Brain Health at the Global Brain Health Institute at Trinity College, Dublin. The Institute's mission is to reduce the scale and impact of dementia around the world by training and supporting a new generation of leaders to translate research evidence into effective policy and practice. We'll have links on the AgeWise website to Dana's work, so be sure to check that out. It's moving and funny and life-affirming. Dana, thank you so much for being on the show. I salute you and your work. It's amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. If you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out some of our other episodes. Head on over to agewise.com, that's A-G-E-W-Y-Z.com, and use our search feature to discover some great conversations with guests who talk about issues of specific interest to you. You'll get tips, find links to useful information, and best of all, know you're not alone. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.